Welcome to service this morning at church, and we welcome all those that are also listening this morning on the radio. Uh, before we get started, a few announcements to cover. Uh, the cookbooks are here. If you purchase from a student, they will deliver it to you. If you order it through the office or want to buy one now, you can pick them up at the parking lot door after church. Next Sunday and today, today and next Sunday, are the Mother's Day open houses in the nursery through third grade Sunday school classes. Sunday school follows the morning service at 10.15. The mother-daughter friend evening is tonight at 6.30 and it is free. There will be several ladies from here in church uh, sharing messages and blessing bags will be for our daily bread soup kitchen in Lima. Now if you would stand and join me in the call to worship. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord our God, we trust your promise to be among us as we gather. We come in the name of Christ, drawn by your Spirit, eager to hear your word. Fill our hearts with your Spirit. And prepare us for your faithful service. Amen. We remain standing and join with the praise team in singing Cornerstone. <coughs>
Now I'll ask the children to come forward for children's chat with uh, Nikki. And while they're coming forward, please take time to greet your neighbor. I've decided to be visible today. So, um, you know that usually when I'm up here, I do something weird, right? That's not going to change. So, today and in the next couple weeks, you're going to hear Pastor Joel talk about some vocabulary that we may not understand. Um, And one of those words is bitterness. Have you ever tasted anything bitter before? You have? Yeah. Have little guys, have you tasted anything bitter before where you take a bite like, or something that's like really sour and you go, Ugh. yeah, yeah, okay, good, good. Yeah, sometimes, okay. Well, bitterness is not just a taste, but, yeah. Yeah, sometimes it tastes really sour, but sour isn't the same as bitter. Hmm. But we use that term because sometimes when you bite into something bitter, you get that reaction of, oh, gross. And then usually you go, hey, this, this needs a little something here. What do we usually add to lemonade to make it less sour? Sometimes water. What else is in lemonade? Lemons and, help me out, sugar. Sugar makes it taste better. Okay, so one of the terms that Pastor Joel is going to use is called bitterness. And bitterness is not just a flavor you can taste on your tongue, but it's actually an attitude and something you can feel in your heart. And when we go to Sunday school, we really focus on having a happy heart and being kind and loving and doing all those good things. But sometimes part of life, not so good things happen. Have you ever cried before? Have you ever not gotten your wave before? No, I have. Yeah. You ever been in the grocery store and you really, really want something, but mom said no? Yeah, that feeling? Yeah. Times 10, you're getting close to bitterness. Okay? I know not being able to pick my my favorite cereal isn't, you know, teeny tiny, but if you like to make it really, really big. Yeah, is garage sailing awesome? Okay. Did, oh, someone's really excited. Way to go, Mom. Blowing my lesson here. No. Um, so uh, I thought I'd explain a little bit more about bitterness by making cookies with you. Have you ever made cookies before? 
Oh, good. Well, my mom would sometimes make cookies with me. Sweet. Then you're going to know exactly what to do. So uh, my mom would make this cool, cool recipe called no-bake cookies. Have you ever had those before? They're like chocolatey goodness. Well, my mom would make them too, but she would say, well, you, if you're going to eat them, you have to help mix them because you make them on the stove, right? So that uh, leads me to my piano bench. So I took the liberty of putting some of the ingredients together. Gather. You're going to want to see this. So what do I have in my bowl? Well, you better look. What do I have in my bowl? Oh, it's chocolate. Did mom ever let you taste some? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah? You want to taste it now? Okay, get out one clean finger. One clean finger. Okay, touch the chocolate. Do it. You know you want to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, touch the chocolate. Oh, yeah, just a little dip. Oh, is it kind of hot? Yeah. You may want to use the edge of the bulb. Yep, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. There you go. Plenty. There you go. You don't want to? Okay, you want to touch it? Yeah, taste it. Ooh, we're making a mess. I apologize in advance. You want to taste it? You want to taste it? Touch it. Touch it. Touch it. Yeah. What's it taste like? <laughs> What's it taste like? Oh, yeah. You just tasted bitter. <laughs> Is it, do you know what's missing? Sugar. You know, chocolate by itself is actually pretty awful, isn't it? But I need to add something. I need to add some sugar. So if I take a couple couple of these of sugar, we can taste it again and see what happens. Should I add a lot of sugar? You don't want any this time? I can imagine. I can imagine. That was pretty awful because... That was literally cocoa powder and oil. Um, so uh, I bet you do. But you know what? I'm not done yet, and you're going to love me when I'm done. I promise. Okay, so if I add some sugar, is it going to get better? Yeah? I'll do it this time. That's fabulous. But you know what? You just tasted bitter. But you know what? We're going to make it better. Because when we add sugar and we add the other ingredients and we mix it together and melt it, it turns into no-bake cookies. Guess where I put the no-bake cookies? On the pew. So you get that yucky taste out of your mouth and go eat a cookie. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Let's pray. Lord, I'm really sorry about messing with these children this morning, but it was hilarious. And we had to learn about bitterness. And if I told them it was going to taste awful, they probably wouldn't have done it. So thank you. And please keep us happy hearted and help us to grow in our faith with you and teach us to become better instead of bitter. Would you please? Amen. And grab a cookie. Get that yucky taste out of your mouth. <laughs> In the last week, in support of our operations of assisting the Iraqi forces in liberating Mosul, which, of course, is in the Bible known as Nineveh, where Jonah went. First Lieutenant Weston C. Lee 
25, from Bluffton, Georgia, was killed. In addition, in Somalia, near Mogadishu, Senior Chief Special Warfare Operator Kyle Milliken, 38, from Falmouth, Maine, was killed. Thank you, Jay, once again for that reminder uh, to be praying and lifting up uh, not only our arms, those who are serving our armed forces, but also their families um, who deal with the loss in a way that many of us probably can't imagine. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that you are a God of all comfort and all peace. And we pray now for these families who lost loved ones recently, uh, that you would be a source of peace and comfort for them. Uh, we pray, Lord, and look forward to a day when we no longer have to hear about wars or the rumors of wars, but we'll have uh, and know and experience the peace that only you can bring. And we thank you for that. We hope we put our hope and our trust in that and pray that one day uh, we will all be able to experience it in your kingdom. Uh, Lord, we also lift up those who are in need from our own church and community. We pray for those each one of these names that are listed in our bulletin today. And, and whatever need they may have, we pray that you would meet them. Uh, we pray for healing for those who are who are sick and in need of it. We pray for comfort for those who are mourning. And we pray for provision for those who are in need. And Lord, we, we recognize that all gifts, all good and perfect gifts come from you. And so we thank you in, in advance for what we know you are able and can do and will do in our lives. We pray that you would meet all of them according to your will and not our own. Uh, we also, Lord, remember our, our eighth grade uh, group that's leaving for D.C. tonight uh, from, from New Knoxville schools, and we pray for their safety. We pray that they have a good trip and bring them home again, once again, uh, to their families. We pray all these things in the name of Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. For those helping with the offering, please come forward at this time. The offering today goes to support the general fund, and the choir will be singing wonderful words of life.
standing for the reading of scripture. This morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And if you would open your hymnal to number 105, we will sing, He is Lord. be seated. Just like to 
Just thank everyone who was involved with our uh, fundraiser luncheon we had last week uh, to support a family um, in need from our church community. And uh, we're just so blessed to uh, have a church that is just so loving and generous as you showed and put on display last week. Um, just such a, a great turnout. Uh, a great uh, lot of funds were raised to support them, which is a blessing to them, of course. But even beyond that, uh, the church has showed it was such an example of Christ-like love to that family. And so we greatly appreciate it. And I just want to just thank you for, for all that you did to make that happen. Uh, the choir and, and Eric putting that on and organizing it. But the church as a whole just coming together to, to show love and support to that family. Um, just what a, what a blessing to see that. And as, a, as pastor, you know, it's just is, is, it's an honor to serve alongside a church that is um, just so loving and kind in that way. Um, so thank you. Thank you to everyone involved. And I'm sure uh, the family would would extend their gratitude as well. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, uh, that you are a God who loves us, who cares for us and who gives us the ability to then pour out and show that love to others. Uh, as we talked about last week, uh, I pray that you would uh, just continue to help us to do that, um, live out that sort of Christ-like love uh, in our own lives. And, and as we turn to your word now, help us to focus in on that and what you have in store for us today. I pray you give me words to speak and open up our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I, as I began to allude to, uh, last week we, we focused our attention on the fact that God is love and that through him and through his love for us we can move uh, from a position of fear, living out of our fear, maybe of the Lord or fear of others, uh, into a position of love, being able to receive the love God has for us and to then show that love and express that love to others. We focus from 1 John chapter 4 uh, about how he loved us even before we could love him and that he initiates that relationship in our lives and it's not, not from us, but it only begins with him. And then his love for us overflows so that we show that same kind of love to others. Not perfectly, of course, but we do our best to show that Christ-like love to others in our lives. And so when we, as we are going to talk about today, as we're going to look at the scripture passage, uh, we're going to, we're going to put Philippians 2 on the, on the back burner for just a moment. Uh, there's some other passages I want to look at that'll kind of set the groundwork for, for where we're going today. Um, but we're going to see that that God is both love, but he's also holy as well. And so we're going to we're going to look at how he is both loving, as we talked about last week, but also talk about his holiness and what that means for us in our own lives. Uh, we're, as we talk about moving from hostility to humility, as the sermon title says, we're going to look at this other aspect of his character, his holiness his and, and his justice. And, and when we talk about God's holiness and his love, these are not two competing ideas. Uh, they don't contradict each other. God is not either loving or holy. He's both. He's both loving and holy. Um, and that's important for us to hold on to both of those because they go hand in hand. You'll never really understand the depth of God's love for you until you understand his holiness. You'll never really understand the the, the depth that he went to, the height, the, the, what God did for us through Christ on the cross, we'll never really understand the love that he showed us on the cross until we understand just how holy God is. 
And at the same time, we'll never truly understand how holy and perfect and transcendent God is if we never experience the love that he has for us. You see, we can, we can focus on one or the other, but we lose something. If we focus just on his love, we're, we're missing that aspect of his holiness, and we won't really understand just how much he loves us. And if we only focus on his holiness and not his love for us, we're going to miss out on that as well. We're going to miss out on how we experience that love. And, and truly, if we experience that love, we'll understand just how holy he really is. And so they don't contradict each other. They're really two sides of the same coin. We need both God's love and his holiness to have a more complete picture of who God is. In John 1, verse 14, I think this gives a good uh, description of, of this truth and the reality of God's love and his holiness. In describing Jesus and his incarnation, his coming to the world and in the flesh, John writes this, chapter 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, not one or the other. Right? We, we often focus on one or the other, but, but the reality is that Jesus, in his in coming to this earth, God himself coming to this earth, we see he came in both grace and truth. Both of them held together. Nowhere is God's grace and truth, his love and his holiness, on display in greater clarity than on the cross. You see, the cross is the intersection of God's love and his holiness for each one of us. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, God moved us from a position of hostility toward him and others into a position of humility. His love was put on display on the cross, and it was necessary. It was, it was done because God is holy as well. You see, both of them, both of those attributes of God's character come together for us and are on display for us on the cross. And we see that because we see from, from the Bible, uh, and these verses we'll share in just a moment, uh, the reality is that apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. Apart from Christ, we are hostile towards God uh, by nature. And I want to read, I'm going to jump to a few verses here. I'll try to, try to read them here for you. Um, but if you're following along, I'll try to, to do my best to, to let you catch up with me. But Romans 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Again, that's Romans 5, verses 9 and 10. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, right, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Um, Romans 5, 9 and 10 immediately follows the verses that I shared with you last week about how God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies with God, while we were still in rebellion against God, he showed his love by dying on the cross for us. But we see this truth uh, elsewhere as well in Romans 8, verses 7 through 8. Uh, once again, Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So again, while we're apart from Christ, if we are not... In him and have not allowed his, his love to influence us like we talked about last week. We are still apart from Christ. We are at odds against him. We are enemies of the Lord. 
And Paul says again in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Once again, this idea that apart from Christ, apart from what his work on the cross for us, we are enemies with God. Our, and, and that's because our sin has separated us from him. Our sin alienates us from God. Think about it this way. Our sin is like a barrier. It's like a wall that's built up between us in the Lord. You know, we're, our desire, God created us to be in a relationship with Him. And so our natural desire, our natural instinct before sin entered the picture was to have that relationship with Him, was to grow in that relationship, was to, to spend time with the Lord and, and be a part of that, uh, know what it means to be a part of a, in a relationship with Him. Uh, but sin, once sin entered the picture, it created a wall that separated us from Christ, separated us from having a relationship with the triune God. And so that sin separates us. And therefore, while we are still affected by sin, while we're still living in our sin, while until sin is taken care of and removed from our lives, it's impossible for us to be in a relationship with him because that sin has created a barrier. And so while we were still in that state, apart again, I keep saying apart from Christ, but that's an important point here. Apart from Christ, that sin still separates us from the Lord. It still keeps us at odds. It still is separating us from, from being with the Lord as we're intended to be. And so sin, at its core, the reason why the barrier is there is because sin is rebellion against God's authority. We may think that the notion that God can't tolerate sin seems harsh. How could a loving God exclude people from his presence based on a few mistakes or a slip up here and there? You see, if we view sin in just those simple terms of, of, oh, well, everybody does it. Well, I'm not as bad as this other person, right? If we view sin as just simple mistakes, as simple things that happen now and then uh, and aren't that big of a deal, then it doesn't make sense why God would, why we would be separated from God, why a loving God would exclude sin from his presence. But instead, instead of thinking of sin as just some minor slip-ups, We need to think of sin as it truly is. It's rebellion against God and his authority. You see, when we think of sin as just a few mistakes here and there and not for what it is, we're devaluing sin in our lives. We're underestimating the gravity that it has and the impact that it has on our lives. Sin is rebellion against God's authority. When we sin, whether we even realize it or not, we're undermining his authority in our lives. We're we're, we're telling God that he's not really God. We're telling God that he's not really in charge of our lives, that that we have a better plan for ourselves, that we know how to live, and we'll make decisions for ourselves. And, and, it's, and it's interesting because we don't always think in that mind frame, do we? We don't always think about sin in that light. A lot of times sin is a mistake that we make. We don't even realize we're doing it, but that just goes to show how ingrained sin is in our in our very nature. The effect that sin has on us is so great that sometimes we don't even realize that what we're doing is sin. That what we're doing is, in fact, rebellion against God and His authority in our lives. And that rebellion is there from the very beginning. And we can see this in, the, in that original sin in the Garden of Eden from Genesis chapter 3. 
And the scene, I'm sure, is very familiar to, to you. You know, the Eve is in the garden, and, and the serpent comes and starts whispering these, you know, these thoughts in her ear. God had given them one instruction to not eat from the, the tree in the center of the garden, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and so, so in the beginning of chapter 3, the serpent, the enemy, enters the scene and begins to begins to ask Eve these questions. He says, did God really say that this was going to happen? That question is, is there's, there's a lot to that question because what it is at its core is it's, it's undermining, it's questioning God's word. You know, God instructed them not to eat from that tree. And then the serpent comes along and says, did God really say that? Did God really say you couldn't eat from that tree? And we see that taking place in our own lives. We begin to question God's word and the authority that it has in our lives. Did God really say this? Did God really mean it when he said to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us? Did God really say that we should think of others more than ourselves? Right? And we begin to question those things. We begin to question God's word and the, and the impact and the authority it should have in our lives. But that's not all. The serpent continues to ask, or continues to uh, tempt Eve by saying, surely you won't die. All right, in Genesis 3, verse 4, surely you won't die if you eat from that tree. Surely you won't die if you rebel against what God had commanded you to do. But once again, we see that's, that's a lie, right? The, the doubting God's trustworthiness, doubting God's authority in our lives, right? God said... Uh, and, and we see the consequences of sin as death. Uh, but the, the enemy gets us to question that, gets us to doubt that in our own lives. Did God really say you're going to do that? He would do these things. Surely you won't die. Surely the consequences of sin aren't really there. You see, underlying the original sin and underlying what I, sin in general at its core is issue of authority. The question is, will we submit to God's authority in our lives, or are we going to make ourselves out to be a God of our own making? Are we going to allow God to be God? Are we going to allow Him to, to have the authority in our lives that we should allow Him to have, or are we going to make up our own rules and make up our own way of living? And in doing so, putting ourselves in God's rightful place. See, that's why sin at its core is rebellion. It's it's It's... Pushing our, putting ourselves in the place that God rightly deserves. He deserves to be Lord and, and, and God of our lives, but yet we put ourselves in that place. Apart from Christ, you see, we are still in rebellion. We're still in that place of, of undermining God's authority through the sin in our lives. And so we're still uh, enemies with the Lord. But through His death and resurrection, through what Christ has done for us, we are transferred from one kingdom to another. You see, God took us while we were still enemies, while we were still in rebellion against Him, and transferred us from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says that He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, while we were still at odds with the Lord. While we were still in that state of rebellion and sin, God did that for us through Christ. God took us from that place of, of uh, hostility 
and brought us into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. He brought us into his family through Christ's death and resurrection, not of our own doing, not because of we had earned it in some way, but because of his love for us. You see, through Christ, in essence, we're rescued from ourselves. We're rescued from the sin in our lives and the rebellion that we find ourselves in. And that's done through Christ's substitutionary atonement uh, on the cross. It brings us from a state of hostility to humility. I mentioned earlier that the cross is the intersection of God's love and his holiness. See, God is a, is a perfect, um, perfect God. He's holy. He cannot tolerate sin. And so in his love for us, he made, Christ made himself a sacrifice on our behalf. He took that sin, he took all that stuff that separates us from God upon his shoulders and, and allowed us to then become part of his family through that grace that he offers to each one of us. In order to end the rebellion of our sin, in order to remove its effects from us, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. He took the punishment that we deserved. He took the consequences of our rebellion and he took it all so that we could be forgiven. And we see this idea uh, foreshadowed throughout the Bible and, and especially in the Old Testament sacrificial system. We see how this, uh, how this truth that what God was doing through the Old Testament and through the sacrifices was to point people towards Christ and to point people towards what Christ would ultimately do on the cross for each one of us. You see, when, when uh, the Old Testament prescribes these different sacrifices, and there's several different variations if you were to read Leviticus and all the, those, uh, those um, descriptions of the sacrifices there, you'll see that there's different kinds of sacrifices and, and for a variety of different reasons. But the main, the main sacrifice about to remove the sin from the people was a substitutionary sacrifice. The lamb was, was slain in our place. Right? The, the lamb was brought to the temple, and, and the person offering the sacrifice would lay, hand, lay their hand on the, on the head of the animal as a symbol of, of the sin of that person being transferred to the animal. And then the priest would take that animal and sacrifice it on the altar as, a, as the penalty for that sin. And so, so you see that system being established as a way to, to, for people's sins to be forgiven, but the problem with it was that it had to be done over and over and over again. Right? The, every, every sin, every time someone committed a sin, they'd have to go to the temple and sacrifice something in order to, to, to redeem themselves through that. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer a sacrifice for all the people and all the sins that had taken place during that year. You see, it was a system that, that covered up sin, but it never really removed it. And the reason is because it was never meant to be a permanent thing. It was meant to point people towards Christ and what he would ultimately do for us on the cross. See, Christ's sacrifice was perfect because he was the perfect person. Right? He, was, he had done nothing wrong. He had done nothing to deserve it. He was perfect in himself because he was both God and man. And so in his humanity, he did not sin, uh, but also in his divinity, he was that perfect sacrifice because God himself was laying down his life on our behalf. In order to satisfy God's justice, in order to satisfy God's holiness, that perfect sacrifice needed to be there. And in order to demonstrate his love toward us, he, he himself was that sacrifice. 
And so Christ's sacrifice was permanent. And no longer, we no longer need to repeat those sacrifices over and over as they were done in the Old Testament. And it was effective. It removed the guilt and penalty of our sin, both our, all, our past sin, our present sin, and our future sin. Because anyone who's been following Christ for more than 30 seconds knows that sin doesn't quit the moment you put, give, your, give your life to Christ, right? It doesn't just stop the moment you say that prayer. But we continue to struggle with it throughout our lives. God continues to work in us to perfect us. But it's a work in progress. And so that sin will still happen. But Christ's sacrifice was for all of our sin. Past, present, and future. And it was permanent. It was the one sacrifice for all time. And so through the cross, God's love and His holiness come together. He did not have to compromise either His love or His holiness. He didn't have to get rid of one in order to satisfy the other. You see, if we think love and holiness are competing ideas, then in order for God's holiness to remain intact, we think that He can't be loving. Or for God's love to remain intact, for Him to be a perfect, good, loving God, He must somehow compromise His holiness in order to allow sinful people to be in a relationship with Him. But at the cross, we see the two of those ideas coming together. If we truly understand what happened at that moment, the moment that Christ gave His life for us on the cross, the moment that He was raised again from the dead, it would not diminish His love or His holiness, but it would enhance them. We'd realize that God was even more loving than we could possibly imagine. That God was even more holy than we could possibly imagine. It doesn't diminish them, but it enhances them. You see, God's holiness is so great that He can't tolerate sin The only thing then that can remove the penalty of sin is the perfect, holy sacrifice. And so ultimately it was God's holiness on display in Christ that satisfies that requirement. Does that make sense? It was was God's holiness that satisfied him on the cross, displayed through Christ. And God's love for us is so great that he does not leave us in our sin, but that while we are still his enemies... While we had done nothing to deserve his love, he poured out his love through us in Christ, or through Christ to us. He died so that we would no longer have to be his enemies, and we can now be part of God's family. And that is such a, you know, for people that grew up in the church, and I've, I didn't necessarily grow up in the church, but I've, I've been at this game for a little while. That idea can begin to dull in our minds, just how radical God's love is for us. Just how holy God is to have, uh, to, to, to the holiness of God that, that He can, cannot tolerate sin, but yet He was so loving that He became that sacrifice for us to bring us into His family. That love is just radical. That notion that God did that on our behalf while we were still His enemies, while we were still hostile toward Him, just blows my mind. And we need to be reminded of that over and over again because we can begin to, it can be, kind of begin to lose its impact or its power. And so as I was thinking about that, I was trying to think, what would a modern example be of, of enemies that are, that are then brought into the family? And, and I think each generation, as, as, as Americans, you know, we've had, we've had our, our kind of big bad enemy at different times in our, in our history, right? Um, you know, during the middle of the, the 20th century, there was with World War II, it was, it was you know, the Nazi Germany and, and the axis of evil and all of that. Uh, after that, for, for many, many years, it was the Soviet Union through the Cold War. Um, but in my generation, uh, 
you know, growing up uh, since September 11th, 2001, the world kind of changed, right? We kind of shifted and, and, and uh, our big bad enemies isn't ne- aren't necessarily another country out there, but it's this whole idea of terrorism, right? There, it doesn't necessarily have a form that it takes. It kind of has shifted Al-Qaeda. Now we have ISIS and all this, all these different things. But, but we have this enemy and, and, and looking out there, uh, trying to <laughs> figure out how to, a way to put this that makes sense. But imagine, imagine a group of ISIS terrorists that have, are sworn enemies of, of the things that we value in this, in this country, in this culture. Um, and just making, doing all of the things that we hear about in the news and all the things we probably don't even hear about, all these terrible atrocities, all these horrible, horrible things. And someone from our country willingly giving their life on their behalf. Someone that would willingly step in their place to face the, the punishment and justice that they deserve for all the terrible things that they've done. Someone stepping in and showing them that love and compassion. It's hard to even wrap my mind around that idea. <laughs> but if you think about it, if you think about what Christ has done for us on the cross, if you think about the, the great lengths that he went to display his love for us, Someone being willing to take the place of ISIS, that for, to being willing to lay down their life on their behalf is nothing compared to what Christ did for us on the cross. The love that God showed us through Christ, the love that he put on display for us, is so great that, that someone willingly taking the place of, in a trial or taking the place of someone who deserves justice like ISIS is nothing compared to what Christ has done for us. The love that he has shown us on the cross is, is just hard for us to even wrap our minds around. And so, because of what he's done for us, we then need to receive God's grace with humility. James 4.10 encourages us to humble ourselves before the Lord and he will lift us up. God has done this on our behalf. God has, has saved us from ourselves. God has has. Remove the penalty of our sin, even while we are still enemies with him. And all he asks us to do is to then receive that with humility. And that's not always an easy thing to do. We need to acknowledge, we need to realize that we are sinners. We need to realize that that rebellion includes me. It includes you. That even the the things in our lives that we think aren't that big of a deal are still rebellion against the Lord and His authority in our lives. And so we need to recognize sin for what it is and recognize that it affects even ourselves, even me. And in doing so, we recognize our need for a Savior. Recognize that we are helpless and we cannot save ourselves. And we need to accept what Christ did for us on the cross. We need to have the humility to say that I can't save myself. I am not God. And that I need someone to save me. In our, in our individualistic culture, <laughs> that's a hard thing to admit always, isn't it? But that's what God asks us to do. He has already done what is necessary to save us. He simply asks us to humble ourselves, to admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and to acknowledge what He's done to save us. But we're not only hostile towards Him, we're not only hostile and and enemies of the Lord, but through our sin, 
uh, it creates a barrier between us and others as well. Our sin affects has real world, real world consequences and it impacts our relationships with others. So if we're still in our sin, if we're still struggling with that, not only does it create a barrier between us and the Lord, but it creates a barrier between us and our neighbors too. And we see that in Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. I'd encourage you to, to read that on your own. That's Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. But it talks about how, how uh, there's a, a barrier between us as people, but that through Christ, it calls it the dividing wall of hostility. But through Christ, he has destroyed that barrier. He has, he has torn that down and so that we can once again have peace with our neighbors, have peace with each other. Through his death and his resurrection, that wall of hostility is removed. And so not only do we need to be humble in our relationship with the Lord, but we need to be humble with each other and towards each other. And that's where Philippians 2 comes into place. This passage is all about encouraging us to think of others before ourselves and in, in doing so in, in by following the example of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. So how can we act with humility toward each other? First of all, we need to make, make sure that we realize that not everything is about me. Not everything is about you. But we need to think others Think of others ahead of ourselves. We need to value others ahead of ourselves. That's exactly what Christ did for us on the cross. And so therefore, that's what we should do for each other. We often have an egocentric view of the universe, right? Everything revolves around me. And it can be easy to get lost in that sort of mind, mindset where we just, we just think everything in terms of, we think of everything in terms of how it relates to us and how it impacts us. When instead, we should be thinking of how we can value others above ourselves. I think social media just feeds into that, doesn't it? How many of you, have, you know, I'm sure you, you've been on Facebook and scrolled through and everything people put on there seems to be about themselves, right? Everything's like grabbing for attention and, 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 and looking for likes. Uh, and so we need to, you know, social media kind of feeds into that worldview of, of being self-centered. But instead, as, as followers of Christ, we need to put that aside and be humble. But humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not about beating ourselves up. It's not about putting ourselves down and allowing other people to walk on us or, or something like that. But it's about having a good, sober view of who we are. You see, we need to recognize that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, including myself. And that when we are all in the same boat, and when we understand this, and quit thinking of ourselves as better than other people, then we can begin to live out the kind of humility that Christ displayed for us. Romans 12, uh, verse 3, says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Think of yourselves with sober judgment. That doesn't mean, you know, puffing yourself up beyond who you really are, but it also means not lowering yourself and allowing you to, you know, beating yourself up over things. But it's about having a good understanding of who you are in Christ. That we're all sinners in need of a Savior. That that all of our sin, no matter what it is, puts us in the same boat in need of God's grace. And when we're able to recognize that about ourselves and about others, we're able to see that we are all in need of the Lord. And so we don't think of ourselves as more than other people. 
The second thing we can do to be hum- show humility is to be willing to serve others, to not judge them. Christ washed his disciples' feet. It says here in Philippians 2 that he became a servant. And he didn't come to serve, but to be served, but to serve. And he wants us to follow that example. So how can you go out of your way to serve others? Instead of keeping yourself at the center of everything, how can you look to others and put, put yourself last and, and, and go out of your way to, to help another person out? Just as Christ did for us, how can we serve others and follow his example in that way? And the third thing we see here is that we need to die to self. Jesus, the one person who deserved all the attention, the one person who deserved our worship, instead he willingly went to the cross for us. He died so that we might live. And Christ had the right to put an end to it all. As the Son of God, he could have saved himself from the cross, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He set aside his rights as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, for our benefit. If he was able to do that, if Jesus was able to do that on our behalf, shouldn't we be able to set aside our supposed rights for other people? When we think that we are the center of the universe, when we think that we um, should be served instead of serving others, then we think that we, we need to be at the center of everything. But in order to be humble, in order to follow the example of Christ, we need to be willing to set aside our rights and our privileges for others. That means even when things are hard, even when you feel like you deserve something, being willing to set that aside for, for another person's sake. Even when you expect things to be a certain way and want things to be a certain way, being willing to look at the needs of others and saying, no, I'm going to set, a, set that aside so that this other person can benefit. And there's a lot of implications for that in the life of the church, in our own life. We often, we often prioritize our own preferences, right? The way we want things to be instead of looking to others. And so we begin to elevate what we want above the needs of others. And it could be little things, it could be big things. But in doing so, what we're, what we're saying is that we are the head of the church and that everything should be done our way. And I'm just as guilty of that as anyone. But instead, we need to recognize that Christ is the head, not me or anyone else. We should be willing to set aside our preferences, even the things we feel like we deserve, for his sake and for the sake of others. See, he, he has brought us into his kingdom. He has loved us so greatly that we um, are no longer his enemies, that through Christ we have been brought into his family. And it's through his death and his resurrection that that's possible. He has an upside-down kingdom where the first are last and the last shall be first. And so he's asking us to live by that new set of rules of humility towards him, recognizing our need for him in our lives, but also being willing to humble ourselves in our relationship with others. And that's not easy. It's going to take some, take some patience. It's going to take God's work in our lives to do that. But in doing so, we'll begin to live out his kingdom. We'll be able to pray like John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 30. I must decrease, he must increase. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you do, all that you've done for us, that at the cross we see the intersection of your love and your holiness. 
Help us, Lord, to be humble towards you, recognizing our need for you, but also being humble toward others, recognizing, Lord, that we are not the center of the universe, but that we need to humble ourselves, be willing to serve and put other people's needs ahead of our own, just as you did for us on the cross. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Let's stand in closing, sing number 277, the church's one foundation. Why don't we sing just the first verse? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.